If you're traveling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 238 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is a review of FCPA enforcement trends so far. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today from sunny Sicily, Italy. Uh, Still here enjoying the uh, working from here. Beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, and uh, just a great time here in Italy. Um, And I'm glad that uh, you could make it today. I wanted to sort of talk about where we are in FCPA enforcement. We're starting to see some trends developing, some issues being raised in the the new DOJ approach and uh, the SEC enforcement so far as well. Before we get started, let's hear a word from our sponsor, our new sponsor, uh, Diligent. Diligent is the time-tested, award-winning provider of automated governance, risk, and compliance solutions. For over 20 years, Diligent has helped boards and C-suites to design and implement effective governance practices through its market-leading board application. Diligent has now expanded its offerings to include risk, compliance, and audit solutions. Building on these new and exciting capabilities, Diligent now offers the critical capability to connect boards, C-suite, risk, compliance, and audit teams to promote purpose-driven leadership. Building on this capability, Diligent provides a full suite of complementary services including risk management, ethics and compliance, environmental, social, and governance, and proactive auditing strategies and practices. Diligent solutions enable companies to implement robust corporate governance to mitigate and manage risk, create a culture of ethics and compliance, ensure that company controls are audit-ready, and implement tailored and responsive ESG solutions. If interested in exploring Diligent's unique complement of solutions, please reach out to Diligent at its website, www.diligent.com. Well, let's talk about FCPA enforcement. Um, This year so far, we're seeing some interesting uh, developments. Uh, Just a quick refresh before we get into some of the themes. On the SEC side, we saw this year so far, its first FCPA enforcement action was against South Korean telecommunications company KT Corporation, which agreed to pay a $6.3 million settlement uh, for FCPA uh, violations. That was the first action uh, of the year, uh, and it focused on Korea and Vietnam uh, uh, as well. And uh, we also had a, um, we had a declination letter that was interesting. The Justice Department uh, issued a letter declining to prosecute uh, Jardine Lloyd Thompson Group Holdings. And this was a, uh, Jardine is an insurance company. And uh, interesting uh, declination uh, in that case. Um, then we, uh, uh, we had the first Justice Department uh, corporate resolution this year, and that was against Stericycle, 
Uh, and the SEC was part of Stericycle uh, as well. And it was a total of 84 mil around 84 million. There were offsets for uh, other foreign uh, settlement with Brazil uh, as well. Um, so besides the Stericycle case, then we had a big case that came in, which was uh, Glencore. And Glencore uh, paid over $1.1 billion for uh, foreign bribery and market manipulation charges. And then we had offsets in there uh, as well. But the CFTC was involved in the bribery and in the uh, manipulation, market manipulation case as well. But over $1.1 billion to resolve these two major uh, investigations. And obviously, there were coordinated settlements with the U.S., UK uh, and Brazil. Obviously, Glencore uh, is based in the United Kingdom. Um, and that involved uh, bribery in seven countries. Um, and so that was a major, major case which was reviewed. And then after that, we had a uh, SEC settlement uh, involving Tenaris, which was last week's episode. Uh, discussing the Teneris uh, resolution, which was just only involved uh, the uh, SEC, the, F the DOJ declined, and we're going to talk about that case a little bit more here because its uh, declination is kind of weird, uh, doesn't really fit, uh, and wanted to raise some issues with regard to that. So that's sort of what we've seen. I've not gone through the individual cases we have had. Uh, some individuals, uh, there's continuing enforcement involving some arrests and whatever of individuals uh, and uh, resolution of cases. Uh, that seems to be going at a steady pace. But we're starting to see uh, corporate resolutions now. And how do we get at what these new you know, pronouncements were made by the Biden administration? And, and we're starting to see some evidence of uh, the policy changes. And I wanted to go through that a little bit and talk about that a little bit. Uh, 2021 was a slow year for FCPA enforcement. Uh, in fact, the slowest year since I think it was 2015. And uh, so the Biden administration is now starting, you can see its stamp and its push on FCPA enforcement. Uh, and we all anticipated this based upon the elevation of the anti-corruption battle to a national security issue uh, and also um, the issuance of that uh, policy statement uh, combating anti-corruption, combating corruption. So uh, DOJ and the SEC officials, uh, you know, basically promised a new tougher approach to FCPA enforcement. Um, and it, you know, it takes time for that to happen. But I didn't think it was going to take this long. Uh, for uh, the new sort of stamp to be seen, um, but it definitely, uh, the initial enforcement actions, particularly obviously this year that I just briefly mentioned, uh, raised some interesting uh, questions concerning the specific steps that's being taken. So, um, so let's put together sort of Stericycle, Glencore, Teneris, uh, KT, Corp uh, was, uh, I didn't see anything significant in there, but we're starting to see some more significant things in the Stericycle, Glencore, and Tenaris cases. Uh, so let's take stock of where we are. First off, pr uh, very importantly, we're starting to see independent compliance monitors uh, appointed 
uh, on a more, I would say it's just uh, to more situations than occurred uh, in the past. The last administration, for example, the last year of FCPA enforcement, they had no compliance monitors. The last compliance monitor, I think that the uh, Trump administration appointed was in the Erickson case, which was 2019. Um, but DOJ has stressed uh, the importance of appointments, appointment of independent compliance monitors. In other words, that they're going to do this. And they've made it clear that, and I can, you can start to see when they're going to do it. Number one is, first off, if you have pervasive con, uh, you know, conduct, misconduct, but then where is the company in terms of remediation? And oftentimes the company may have enhanced its compliance program, but by the time the resolution occurs, they've not tested the new program. And uh, the Justice Department seems to be concerned about that when there's, uh, you may have a new enhanced program in place, that's part of your remediation effort, but if you haven't uh, either completed the enhancement or tested your new program, uh, and you have pervasive conduct, uh, I think uh, DOJ is making it clear that there's going to be independent compliance monitors. And they did so in the first two cases, Stericycle and Glencore. Now that, um, I think, is a, a big trend to watch because obviously it raises serious issues with regard to the cost or the, of the, such a thing. Uh, and I think in the Stericycle case, it was for two years. Glencore just was such a bad set of facts, uh, three years in that case, with regular reporting uh, and interesting uh, sort of development and use of calling them independent compliance monitors um, and going from there. So that's, I think we're going to see more of those. That's the first thing we're definitely going to see more compliance monitors being appointed, and that always raises risks of enforcement actions or difficulties with a compliance monitor or, uh, you know, seeing violations of, let's say, a deferred prosecution agreement or a guilty plea uh, condition. Okay, so uh, the other issue we've seen more of is DOJ stress the importance of evaluating a company's prior criminal and civil record and their perform and their conduct. And this was uh, controversial at the time when DOJ announced it because the defense bar uh, feared that this would result in an unfair assessment of prior bad acts or regulatory violations as part of an FCPA resolution. Uh, and DOJ sort of responded that it intended to focus on recidivists and understanding the corporate defendant's prior record of conduct, whether criminal, civil, or regulatory. But again, DOJ has pointed out uh, in their policy statements that they're focused on recidivism and, for example, violations of, let's say, deferred prosecution agreements or even non-prosecution agreements were not going to be lightly treated. In other words, uh, DOJ made it sound like, you know, you're not just going to get an extension of a DPA and pay some money and even though you violated the terms of the DPA while uh, you were... Um, you know, while you were trying to comply with all the requirements. So uh, I think that DOJ's, uh, I mean, I don't, commitment to looking at a company's historical record, I think it's interesting. Um, but uh, what I found is it was almost directly contradicted early on 
uh, assuming in the Tenaris case, because DOJ's recent failure to prosecute Tenaris for its FCPA violations in Brazil raised interesting questions. Okay, first we have uh, in 2011, uh, Tenaris had entered into a non-prosecution agreement with the Justice Department for uh, illegal bribery payments in Uzbekistan. Um, and uh, they also entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the SEC uh, as well in 2011 for that conduct. And now uh, the SEC prosecuted Tenaris in the most recent case for FCPA violations in Brazil that occurred after the 2011 deferred prosecution agreement. Now, the SEC settlement uh, Back in 2011, Tenaris paid $5.4 million um, and uh, entered into a deferred prosecution agreement. Um, and the SEC, in its recent action against Tenaris, took this prior enforcement action into account and ultimately uh, settled with Tenaris for $78 million uh, for its bribe payments in Brazil. And we went over this in the last episode, episode 237. Now, DOJ's decision in, uh, in the current Tenaris investigation to close its investigation without a settlement uh, was announced in a Tenaris press release. But to me, it's inexplicable that DOJ would not prosecute this case. It's contrary to its sort of uh, policy pronouncement on uh, recidivism. Uh, in 2011, just to remind everybody again, DOJ entered a non-prosecution agreement uh, for bribes paid to Uzbekistan, and Tenaris paid a criminal fine of $3.5 million. Now, the conduct at issue in the recent case with Tenaris was between 2008 and 2013, so continued at least two years after uh, DOJ and Tenaris entered into the non-prosecution agreement. To me, it's inexplicable given their statement about the need to uh, focus on recidivism and that uh, non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreements are not going to be just, you know, if you violate those, there's a slap on the wrist. Now, clearly DOJ is getting ready to, to engage in aggressive enforcement of its deferred prosecution agreement with Ericsson. Uh, and, and we've been reading about that in terms of ongoing violations or violations that occurred during the DPA period that, that reflected back to um, uh, bribery in Iraq. But here, when they had an opportunity with Hineris, uh DOJ sort of lay down and said, okay, we're going to close the case. Hard to, hard to understand that. Uh, so they, you know, DOJ did not sort of take this opportunity to emphasize or confirm how they're going to aggressively prosecute violations uh, or prior conduct, even though the NPA uh, or DPA could have expired by the time the Tenaris case came up uh, again in Brazil. Uh, it seems to me like this should have been a situation that was handled a little bit more aggressively. Anyway, so uh, we'll see what happens in some of the other cases. The Erickson case, I still think they're going to be incredibly aggressive. Uh, and Erickson obviously raises issues uh, in paying bribes to ISIS, the terrorist organization in Iraq. So um, the other issue is, 
there are two, well, there are two issues really to talk about. Uh, one is the CCO compliance certifications, but we've also seen, before we get to that, because it's a big issue, uh, a little bit on the remediation side where DOJ accredited um, remediation efforts when a company uh, implemented a centralized uh, compliance program. And it, it indicated to me that maybe there's more movement towards, uh, you know, a basic requirement of an empowered uh, CCO in a global organization. That model seems to be uh, favored by this group, and I think it could be reflect uh, the AAG of the criminal divisions, Kenneth Polite, uh, his, uh, his own experience as a chief compliance officer. But um, I thought that was interesting in the stair cycle case. Uh, there was credit that was given for the re remediation. But let's go to the last big issue and probably the biggest change that we've seen, uh, and that is in the chief compliance officer's uh, certifications. So DOJ and the SEC are now requiring uh, chief compliance officers to certify at the end of an independent compliance monitor term or the end of a self-reporting term. Uh, the CEO and the CCO um, must uh, certify about uh, the quality uh, and the remediation efforts of with regard to the compliance program. Now, uh, this has its controversial aspects to it. Um, you know, so chief compliance officers should be should raise questions um, about this and what the intent and what's and the basis for the requirement. Now, DOJ says that the compliance certification requirement uh, is only intended to empower CCOs within the corporate organization. Uh, in other words, to give them a seat at the table at the resolution to make sure that they can specifically say separate from the general counsel that uh, they've met the requirements, the company has met the requirements uh, of the resolution and the, let's say they had an independent compliance monitor uh, in that uh, the goals have been achieved. Now, I mean, it's a good, uh, I don't doubt that it's going to elevate the CCO standing. It's going to put some pressure on the CCO and the, C and the chief compliance officers have to communicate where they are and what their thinking is and what their requirements are with regard to that certification. Uh, and I, uh, I think that's going to be a really interesting issue as companies sort of wrestle with that. Now, uh, but let's go back for a second because CCOs fear uh, potential liability for, let's say, a false statement and obstruction of justice for any false certification. So the, the required certification form, when you look at it, and it's attached to the settlement papers, includes attestations and uh, agreements that basically that the, any statement, any false statement uh, is material, and that's a requirement under the false statements criminal statute and the obstruction of justice statute uh, re, uh, um, is also satisfied. So CCOs, as part of the certification, are going to acknowledge that uh, these are material statements, the certification, and that a false statement would obstruct justice and violate the stat or meet the requirements of that. And in raising this and looking at the language, uh, you know, chief compliance officers are worried that di discretionary prosecutions, you know, you're relying upon the uh, prosecutors 
exercise of discretion and there could be questionable uh, prosecutions where the evidence may be ambiguous or you know or, or just you know, there's no clear uh, violation that occurred now look most prosecutors and I was a as you know former prosecutor for a long time it's one thing when you rely on prosecutorial discretion as a legitimate boundary against abuse and you know most if not all I mean all prosecutors that I ever worked with were were honorable they had they followed proper principles uh, but CCOs, I could see, would have uh, legitimate anxiety. Um, and it's not so reassuring when we look at some of the recent prosecutions uh, that have demonstrated some odd prosecutorial discretionary decisions. Um, for example, uh, we, and I've written about the prosecution of the Boeing technical director and the recent special prosecutor, Durham's, unsuccessful prosecution of Michael Sussman for false statements. In both cases, the jurors quickly returned with not guilty verdicts, and individual jurors told reporters that the case should never have been brought and was a waste of their time. I mean, they actually felt sorry for the defendants in that case and thought that they shouldn't have been charged. That's not a good reflection on prosecutorial discretion. Uh, and I can understand the CCO community being uh, concerned about this um, in that it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be prosecuted for a technical violation, but it raises very serious concerns is how should a CCO exercise discretion or exercise its due diligence to make sure that its program, the program that they are responsible for, is reasonably designed to prevent and detect uh, uh, violations of the code or of law. So um, there has to be more definition here. There has to be some more constraints. I think DOJ should look at whether there should be centralized review and approval of a CCO prosecution um, to make sure it's consistently done. You don't want to have a U.S. Attorney's Office sort of off on a frolic and a detour uh, and aggressively going after a chief compliance officer for whatever reason, to make sure the motivations are proper. So there are ways to address that, but I can understand the concern that the CCO community has uh, in, in, you know, being empowered is one thing, but also being um, subject to potential uh, prosecution for false statements here or obstruction of justice is, uh, is quite another. Um, and uh, it seems to me that uh, chief compliance officers are going to have to come up with their own due diligence process. Obviously, they'll be working with the independent compliance monitor, let's say, in those situations. And for that period, of a, if it's a three- or two-year term, they're going to know intimately what they're doing, and uh, there are going to be reports submitted by the independent compliance uh, monitor. But that doesn't address all of the potential risks uh, that a CCO may face in uh, making a broad assertion about its program. And it could raise conflicts between the chief compliance officer and senior management or the board where the chief compliance officer says the, they don't feel comfortable uh, certifying to the government as to the uh, state of the company's uh, compliance program. So that seems to me to be a real issue. Let's keep, uh, you know, uh, let's keep following it and see what kind of trends we can see developing there. But 
that to me is uh, something that's uh, we haven't heard the end of it and I think there's going to be continuing uh, sort of focus and discussion. Okay, well, that's where we are so far for the year on FCPA enforcement. Some interesting trends, and we're going to watch for some more corporate cases uh, that could be uh, even more interesting in terms of developing some of these uh, trends. So take care, and thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com See for me that her hair's hanging down That's the way I remember her bed Here you go When the snowflakes fall when the river's free and summer ends, please see for me if she's wearing a coat so warm to keep her from the howling wind. If you're traveling in the north. Country fair, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline. Please say hello to one who lives there, for she was once a true love of mine. In the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy On the borderline Remember me To one who lives there True love of mine